Welcome to As the Season Turns, a podcast following each month of the year. As the hedgerows change, the full moons come and go, and nature takes its course in the garden. I'm Leah Lander, a nature writer and author of The Almanac, A Seasonal Guide. And this podcast is brought to you by Fern, makers of small-batch organic natural perfume, who blend, barrel-age and bottle four fragrances a year, released at the equinoxes and solstices. We hope that this brief guide to what to look for in the month ahead will awaken you to the rhythms of the year and help you, in the words of the poet Ray Carver, settle deeper into the seasons. There's no way to get around this. December is all about the drive towards one huge, sparkly, food-filled thing. Christmas is not just the highlight of the month, it is the high point of the year, and I do think it is kind of wonderful that this drive to celebrate the very deepest point of winter is still with us. Huge celebrations around midwinter almost certainly predate Christianity itself, because human beings sometimes have quite good ideas, actually. And filling the darkest days of the year with sparkly lights, fires and food is among our best. All of the preparation and celebrating can make this quite a tough month emotionally because there is an expectation that we will celebrate in a certain way and if that can't be met, we feel like failures. If this is you, I would urge you to create your own moment of stillness and celebration with a fire or candles and something warming to eat on the winter solstice, which this year falls on the 21st of December. What is important is that we are reaching the nadir of the year, and we need to use whatever is at our disposal to get through it, whether that be a great family gathering or sinking into the sofa with a new box set. Once we're through Christmas, the new year will begin with all of its attendant feelings of hope and renewal and clean slates. So crack open those Ferrero Rocher and snuggle down for the darkest days. The Naming of December Duloch in Scots Gaelic December in Scots and Ulster Scots Nolig in Irish Gaelic Mi un olic in Manx, Hragvir in Welsh, Kevardu in Cornish, Desambre in Gerier. Nolig in Irish Gaelic and Mi un olic in Manx both come from Natalicius, Latin for birthday or birth. Relating to Christmas, this is the only place where Christianity has left its mark on the names of the month in the settled languages of the British Isles. The Welsh hragvia means foreshortening and is thought to relate to the shortening of days. In a similar vein, the Scots Gaelic duloch, meaning black, is concerned with the increasing gloom. Cornish goes one step further, having used up black on November. Its name for December is kevadu, which is most similar to the Breton name for the month, kerzu, and it means very black. The Welsh Romany name for December, on the other hand, is a clear reference to Christmas and the birth of Jesus. It is May de Blesco Munthos, my God's month. There is no single religion within Romany culture, 
And depending on where they have travelled, some Romanis have adopted Islam and others have retained a faith in Hinduism that they may have brought with them from roots in India. But the vast majority are Christians, and almost all British and Irish Romanis are. This month Romani families would have hunkered down for the winter, perhaps tucked into the lee of a hedgerow sparkling with frost, with a glowing fire to gather around and warm cold hands and feet, its smoke wafting through the chilly air. The men might work at hedge-laying and dry stone walling, depending on the part of the country, and the women and children would gather mistletoe and make holly wreaths to sell at the markets ahead of Christmas. And when the day came, a full roast dinner would be cooked outdoors over the fire, goose, pudding and all. The Hedgerow in December This is the time of the long sleeps, when the hedgerow inhabitants have tucked themselves back underground or into nooks out of harm's way. The hedgerow's greatest contribution to the lives of its inhabitants now is in creating shelter, filtering winds, sloughing off some of the rains and forming sunny little enclaves at its base. On cold days you would think that nothing lives in it, though you would be grateful to be standing on the leeward side of it. However, on milder days, there can be some tentative venturing out in search of sustenance. Seven-spotted ladybirds will rouse themselves from their crannies and creep along branches on the hunt for overwintering aphids, and badgers will go out foraging whenever there is a decent spell. Even hedgehogs will come out of deepest hibernation and move to a new spot, snuffling for grubs along the way. You have to look hard for signs of life, but hazel catkins are already starting to fatten and elongate. Spring is having ideas even in the depths of winter. Old man's beard is now shedding those fluffy seeds, and they are being lifted by winter winds to drift and hopefully fall on bare ground, where they will wait patiently to germinate in warmer times. Spindle, likewise, has dropped its orange seeds to take their chances, leaving just the pink wings of the casings dangling prettily. Hollyberries are shiny and red against the dark foliage, begging to be plucked by birds or by human foragers. Ivy, always keeping its own time and still producing flowers even in these darkest moments, is just starting to turn some of those flowers to blackberries, which will be loved by the birds as the hedgerow heads deeper into winter. Types of frost. Hoarfrost, from hoary meaning aged and whitened, in reference to the shaggy and feathery coating that hoarfrost leaves. It occurs under calm, cloudless skies, when there is no or very little wind, and under inversion conditions, when cold air is trapped under warmer air. Advection frost. Strong, cold winds prettily rim the edges of objects and plants with tiny spikes of frost, usually pointing in the direction of the wind. Window frost, also known poetically as fern frost or ice flowers. This is the frost that creeps across window frames, forming swirls, feathers and other patterns, caused by the difference between the very cold air on the outside of the glass and the warmer, moderately moist air on the inside. The growth of the patterns responds to imperfections on the glass surface. 
Flower of the month, Christmas rose. Latin name, Helleborus niger. Helleborus from the Middle English elebor and or the Greek helleboros, a name given to plants that are both poisonous and medicinal. Niger, Latin for black, perhaps referring to the roots. Common names, hellebore, Christmas rose. Legend says that the Christmas rose sprouted when the tears of a young girl who had no gift to give the baby Jesus fell on the snow. Helleborus niger is certainly as pretty as a snowy Christmas card, with its pure white simple flowers just begging for a robin to perch nearby. But in fact, the species does not reliably flower at Christmas and can kick in a little later. Disappointing. However, breeding efforts have been concentrated on bringing that flowering season forward. So if you go to a garden centre this month and buy a hellebore while it's in flower, you should have one that can be decked with outdoor fairy lights every year. Hellebores do well in the ground, but their downward-facing blooms can get a little lost. They work better in pots that can be lifted up onto tables or placed either side of the front door for December. Vigilia and the Animals On Christmas Eve at the stroke of midnight, something magical happens in barns, hutches and dog baskets. For one hour only it is said that animals are given the power of human speech – although only those who have led a blameless life can hear them. This ability is bestowed upon them because of the part they played in the stable in Bethlehem, watching over Jesus in the manger. The ox and the donkey are the only ones that get a Bible mention, and they bowed down to him. But the shepherds must have brought their sheep, and what stable doesn't have a few mice running around in the straw, or a pair of doves in the rafters, or maybe even a small colony of overwintering bees in the cracks between the stones. Christmas lore around the British Isles has it that bees wake from their winter slumber to hum Psalm 100, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. But such festive animal tales are most widespread in continental Europe, and they have been fully interwoven into Polish Christmas traditions. Polish families celebrate on Christmas Eve, known as Vigilia, meaning vigil. The meal can only begin when the first star of the evening is spotted in the sky, and it always begins with the breaking and sharing of oplatek, a thin wafer, pieces of which are also given to each pet or farm animal. The meal comprises twelve courses, one for each of the disciples, and is meat-free, partly in recognition of the animals. Straw is placed under the table or under the tablecloth, to remind people of the stable. Names for December's full moon. Full cold moon. Oak moon. Moon before Yule. December's full moon falls on the 19th, and it is the highest and brightest of the year. In the year-round wrestle for dominion that is played out in the sky between the sun and the moon, the moon is definitely winning right now, and shines high, bright and strong over the winter countryside, just as the sun stays low and weak. But of course, December brings the winter solstice, the moment at which the pendulum starts to swing back the other way. Neo-pagans believe 
that in pre-Christian times the year was ruled over by two kings, the Holly King, representing winter, and the Oak King, representing summer. The timing for each king's rule is a matter for debate, but some believe that in their battle for supremacy, the winter solstice was the moment at which the Oak King slayed the Holly King, and like the sun started to build strength. Perhaps this is some clue as to the origin of the name Oak Moon. This December's full moon falls before the winter solstice, and so it also takes the name Moon Before Yule. Meteor Shower of the Month, the Geminids. The year closes with our most spectacular and reliable meteor shower, the Geminids, which is thought to be intensifying every year. This year, the peak comes on the night of the 13th and early hours of the 14th, not long before the full moon, and so the fainter tracks will be lost. But the Geminids are so bright and numerous that you should catch plenty anyway. There is also no need to get up at pre-dawn to see them, as they are active in the evening. They are at their peak at 2am, but worth viewing several hours before and after that. The radiant is 70 degrees above the southern horizon at the peak. These meteors are produced when the Earth passes through the dust trail left by asteroid 3200 Phaethon, which is named after the son of the Greek sun god Helios as it has an orbit that takes it closer to the Sun than any other named asteroid. Its debris burns up as it hits our atmosphere, producing a beautiful display of slow-moving, and therefore easy-to-spot, meteors with a yellow hue. During the course of December in Inverness, day length decreases by 31 minutes to a minimum 6 hours 35 minutes, on the 22nd, then increases by seven minutes by the end of the month. In Padstow, it decreases by 21 minutes to a minimum seven hours and 59 minutes on the 22nd, then increases by four minutes by the end of the month. Pilgrimage of the Month, Stonehenge at Midwinter. Stonehenge is England's great Stone Age cathedral. Erected around 2500 BC, in the late Neolithic period. It is an extremely complex and intricate structure, and when complete, worked both as lunar and solar calendar and as eclipse predictor. But who built it and exactly what they used it for have been the subject of fierce debate. Despite this, archaeological evidence suggests that it was always a place of pilgrimage, and somewhere that Neolithic people would travel great distances to reach in order to gather, dance, get married, trade goods, share information and observe the heavens. In particular, Stonehenge was a place to mark the key moments in the astronomical year, the summer and winter solstices at midsummer and midwinter. And this continues today. Now at the summer solstice, great gatherings of about 10,000 people come to party, meditate, worship and watch the sunrise, which today occurs just to the left of the heel stone. At the winter solstice, the sun would have set exactly opposite the position of the summer sunrise, framed between the two uprights of the tallest trilithon, though half of one upright has now fallen. 
In fact, it seems likely that it was midwinter that saw the major gatherings in ancient times. And it is the midwinter sunset that can be viewed through these stones from the professional avenue leading up to it. Although Stonehenge is fenced off for most of the year, it is opened for midsummer, midwinter and the equinoxes, when you can visit and get in amongst the vast and ancient stones. Spring and Neap Tides The spring tides are the most extreme tides of the month, with the highest rises and falls, and the neap tides are the least extreme, with the smallest. Exact timings vary around the coast, but expect them around the following dates. Spring tides, the 4th to the 5th and the 20th to the 21st. Neap tides, 12th to the 13th and the 27th to the 28th. Migration of the month. Red Wings. By December, most travellers have found a place to hunker down and will not be on the move until spring. There are few migrations in midwinter, for the obvious reason that most creatures migrate in autumn specifically to find a place to sit out this dark and chilly bit. However, a blast of icy weather, should one hit, can put some birds on the move again. Red Wings carried out their main migration back in October. Coming from Russia and Scandinavia, they gathered along the Scandinavian coast and then set off as night fell, completing the 800-kilometre journey across the North Sea in one great flight. They stick together, travelling in flocks, sometimes mixing with field fares, other winter migrants who behave in a similar way. Their first call on reaching Britain and Ireland is the orchards and hedgerows, feasting on leftover fruits, and as winter goes on they take to open farmland and dig for worms among the stubble. But when snow and ice hit, they will move again. After a heavy snowfall, city dwellers may open their curtains to see not just a newly soft and white version of their garden, but also a great flock of red wings and fieldfares perched in a nearby tree. The birds spend those cold winter spells in cities because they are warmer than the open countryside and because there are greater opportunities to find food once autumn's bounty has been gobbled up. Give them fruits and berries, a treat of mealworms and some unfrozen water if you want to help keep them going. When the temperature rises again, they will head back to the countryside. Come spring, they migrate back across the North Sea to their breeding grounds in Scandinavia and beyond, their brief but crucial sojourn in our gardens long behind them. December Garden Meditation Everything is sleeping in the garden now. Mammals tucked away, perennial plants died back to their roots, insects snoozing in hollow stems or piles of dry leaves. Step into your garden and sense the peace, the slumber, and think about the fact that your garden needs this period of deep rest. You can almost hear the snoring. We are at the darkest end of the year, when there is so much more night than day, making this a good time to take your five-minute meditation as night falls. Look up at the stars and think about how the piece of earth on which you are standing is now tipped away from the sun 
and towards the dark and the cold, and that this is the reason frosts form and snowflakes fall. Look up into eternity. But know also as you gaze into the endless dark and cold that we are at the turning point of the year. After the winter solstice this month, the northern hemisphere will start to slowly tip back towards our warm, welcoming, life-giving sun. The garden, the creatures and the plants will immediately sense it and within weeks will start to rouse themselves. So this point in the year may be the darkest, but it is a moment for great hope and rejoicing. It all gets lighter after this. December in the Fern Studio. This month in Fern's Somerset Studio, the team is preparing for the release of Winter 22, which will be launching on the solstice. Bottles are being filled and packed by hand, ready to arrive in time for December the 21st. Winter 22 has echoes of the very first Fern fragrance, Winter 19, but with ingenious twists on the original formula. Expect sweet orange, sandalwood, and honeyed mimosa, with cedar and marjoram for the greener, woodier notes. Thank you for listening to this month's episode. If you've enjoyed listening, please do like and subscribe. All episodes are released on the first of each month. You can read more about the year ahead in my book, The Almanac, A Seasonal Guide to 2021, available in all good bookshops. This podcast has been brought to you by Fern. Fern is a natural fragrance maker based in Somerset. Working with the rhythms of the seasons, they blend, barrel age and bottle four fragrances a year, released at the equinoxes and solstices. Each fragrance is made to order for the names on the Fern production ledger. To join the ledger and find out more, visit www.fern.co.